I am Sue. I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups because today I love an alcoholic. And uh, I want to thank Danette and Mark and the committee for inviting Keith and I to participate in your day. And uh, I want to thank Tom for being such a great host. He's been hauling us around and picked us up at the airport. He was there waiting on us. And uh, he's been very attentive. And I want to thank him. And I want to thank Nancy for going to lunch with us. Uh, she's a trip. <laughs> and uh, she's very easy to talk to because all you have to do is mention a topic and she's off and running. Uh, <laughs> most al are very timid, but not her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm the kind of al that... Uh, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home, you know, and, uh, you know, I hear uh, people in meetings say, and when I was new, they would say, you know, you grow up in an alcoholic home, you're affected by alcoholism, you meet the alcoholic personality, and you're attracted to the alcoholic personality if you're not alcoholic, and that if you get an alcoholic and you get rid of him, you only get another one because you're attracted to the alcoholic. Well, Keith's my first husband. And uh, last September the 29th, we were married 46 years. Uh, thank you. And uh, we were together two years prior to that. And I, we lived in the disease of alcoholism, the active disease, for 15 years. And um, my recovery date in Al-Anon is May the 11th, 1976. I haven't stabbed, hit, or kicked, or slapped anybody since then, and Keith's grateful for that. (laughs) Alcoholism is a deadly disease. I love my husband being sober. He's not my alcoholic. A lot of people say, my alcoholic. Well, that's taking possession and I had to let him go. Who wants one anyway? Yeah. <laughs> He's God's alcoholic. He belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous. He's my husband, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful he sobered. And like I said, I've come to understand that alcoholism is a deadly disease, and if he ever drinks again, he'll die, because I'll kill him. <laughs> and, uh, Because I love him sober. I love him sober. Uh, I hear a lot of women get up this podium and talk about all the men they've had in their lives. And uh, I'm not going to do that. Because Keith is my man. And has been since I was 17 years old. He came into my life and that's what I needed. That's all I needed. And uh, I am so grateful to my God today because I believe that I had some character defects that uh, could have caused me a lot of pain, but they weren't character defects. And that God put an alcoholic in my life in order for me to catch the disease of alcoholism, in order for me to find find you, in order for me to find my God. And I am so grateful to that because I believe that uh, the success of failure is admitting the defeat. And I could not have any success in my life until I admitted the defeat of alcoholism, not knowing that's what it was. You know, I had, uh, I always, growing up, felt unwanted, unloved, and alone. Uh, My dad worked in the oil fields, and we traveled all around the Texas, Oklahoma, Panhandle, and western Kansas, and following the oil rigs. And we lived in a trailer house, and I was called trailer trash a lot. And I'd go five, six, seven schools in one year. Never felt like I belonged. And uh, we settled down in the Texas Panhandle, and uh, my father passed away with cancer. And so my older sister had gotten married, started her own family, and that left my mother and my younger brother and I together. After my father passed away, my mom started partying, and I hated her for that. And uh, I started rebelling and looking for love in all the wrong places, and I ended up in San Antonio, Texas, in an unwed mother's home. 
And I stayed there for a period of time, and I gave a child up for adoption. And I'm so grateful I did that, because no way at that age could have I been responsible and raised a child. And uh, when I got out of there, I went back home, and it was boring. The kids I'd hung with were boring. And uh, one night, my mom said, would you like to go to a honky-tonk with us? And I said, yeah. And so I went with her and her friends uh, to this place. And, uh, God, we walked in, and it was rowdy, and it was smoky, and the music was playing. People were drinking. They were fighting, and it's like, I'm home. <laughs> I loved it. I loved everything about it. And I watched this cowboy move the room, and everywhere he went, something was happening. He was starting fights. I thought it took a lot of courage for him to do that. <laughs> And he came running past me, and he said, Honey, let me know when the fight's over. And he ran in the woman's restroom to hide. (laughs) And so when uh, the fight was over, I opened the door, and I said, Okay, cowboy, you can come out now. He came out, and he asked me for the last dance. And the last dance was usually a slow dance, where you could rub up against each other and get ready to go home. (laughs) And uh, this was a fast dance, and it kept getting faster and faster and faster, and we never missed a lick. And I loved it. And what I understand today is that he got me downtown in the fast lane right now. Next day he called and asked me out, and my mom said, no, you're not going out with him. He's older than you, he's been married before, and he's in trouble all the time. And I said, I don't care. And he came to pick me up, and the doorbell rang, and, and I go outside, and there's no car. And... <laughs> I go, now, wait a minute. My dates picked me out in cars. And he said, well, you don't understand. I've lost my driver's license forever, and I totaled my car. And I said, no problem. <laughs> and uh, we got in my car, and I knew what to do, take him to the drive-in movie, and you sit there, and you kiss and smooch and steam up the windows. And we sat there at that movie, and we watched the movie. And I remember thinking, this must be what it's like to be with a more mature man. <laughs> And then I noticed that he had a six-pack of beer sitting between his legs that he was more interested in than me. And that set up that obsession. I wanted to be number one in that man's life. And that obsession almost killed me for the next 15 years. And uh, we dated for two years. We fought a lot. He wouldn't mind. And uh, we'd go to those honky-tonks. And uh, we'd go from... uh, the Texas Panhandle up into Kansas through the Oklahoma Panhandle. We go honky tonks up there, and we were up there uh, one night, and uh, he started flirting with this gal. And so I know how to make a man pay attention to me. You flirt with another guy. I didn't know that alcoholics work in opposites, and it just made him angry. And we got in a big fight, and uh, we went out in the parking lot, and we had the fight about who was going to drive home, and he won. And we get in the car, and we're headed back for Texas. And we go across the Oklahoma state line. They had radar set there. And he said, my gosh, if they ever catch me, I'll never see the sun again. And I said, no problem. And we switched places in that car going 100 miles an hour. And when we got uh, the other end of the Oklahoma state line, they had a roadblock set up for us. And I remember the highway patrol coming up to my window and saying, we don't know how you got under the wheel of this car. When we clocked you back there, you weren't driving, but we don't care. We've checked this car out, and it's been reported stolen, so we're taking you in. And Keith smarted off to the cop, and they handcuffed him and put him in the sheriff's car and told me to follow him 40 miles to this county seat so they could arrest me, so I did. And uh, we get there, and they're fingerprinting and booking me. And uh, Keith said, uh, they said, you can make one phone call. And Keith said, I want to speak to the district attorney. And I'm so impressed. It's like, this man goes straight to the top. (laughs) And this guy walks in, and it was cold outside like it is here, and he had on a winter coat with a fur collar. I had it turned up, and he was so cool. And uh, I was introduced to my future (laughs) father-in-law. And so for the first year we dated, I was in custody of my future father-in-law, but there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. And uh, we dated in... uh, he got a draft notice, and we decided we couldn't live without each other, so we ran off to Amarillo, Texas, and we got married. And uh, a few weeks later, he went to take his physical, and Uncle Sam didn't want him, so I got to keep him. 
And uh, his parents, his grandparents and I decided that what he needed to do was go back to school. Now, he had gone to school quite a bit. Never got a degree, but he had never stayed put. He went to all these different schools. And I knew that I had what it took to make him stay put. And so we uh, moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Keith enrolled in school. And shortly after that, we had our little girl, Simone. And I remember when they handed that little girl to me, I remember thinking, thank God she's a girl. Because Keith was a drunk, his granddad was a drunk. What I didn't know is that alcoholism doesn't care what sex, color, race, or creed you are. It can take you to the gates of insanity and hell, and you don't even have to drink booze to get there. Yeah, and uh, we stayed there for four years for him to get a two-year degree, and I took all the credit. And I needed the validation, and I started giving myself that validation. If it wasn't for me, he couldn't have done that. Because the alcoholism in him was telling the alcoholism in me that you're nobody, you don't count. And uh, he came home one day, and he said, I want to move to California. I said, not going to California. It's too wild and crazy out there. We'll not raise children in California. He said, babe, you don't understand. He said, you've been going to these honky-tonks. He said, you've been getting in fights. And the only reason I got in fights because we'd go to those honky-tonks and I'd tell him, don't get in a fight. And I'd have to go to the restroom. And I'd put him in a booth and I'd say, stay. <laughs> and I'd come out and there'd be a fight in the middle of the dance floor. And I'd go dig my way through there. And uh, I'd get hit and I'd hit back. And they'd say, where'd she come from? And I'd look over and he'd be in the booth. <laughs> and, I'd fight. and he'd go, why do you fight in these places all the time? <laughs> so he told me, he said, when you get to California... You won't have to fight in those places. You won't have to drink out of paper sacks. And he said the magic words, a lady like you belongs in California. You see, I always wanted to be a lady. I didn't know how. And he said, and you go to California, you go to a restaurant, and they serve you cocktails. You belong in a place like that. And I'm going, yeah. yeah. So we hurried up and packed our stuff, and Keith built this big box and sprayed it blue. We put wheels on it. We attached it to the back of our station wagon, and uh, we headed for California. We had our German Shepherd and our cat and Simone in the back of that station wagon. We'd laid the seats down. It should take three days to get to California. It took us 30. <laughs> because we'd had to go through Oklahoma City and get a prescription filled in a baggie at midnight. Now, I was so smug and arrogant that I would say, I will be married to a drunk, but I will never be married to a junkie. I'm better than that. <laughs> what I understand today is a drug is a drug is a drug. And uh, so we started out for California, and it depended on what he took or what he drank as to how far we went, and there was days we just stayed put. And uh, our dog would stand behind the driver's seat and wait for big trucks and chase them barking to the back of the station wagon. He was so crazy being pent up in that car. And uh, he'd fall down, they'd have a dog and cat fight, and Simone would start bawling, and I'd turn around, and I'd start whacking and bitching, and Keith would start drinking. And we did that one day at a time for 30 days. And we get to California, and... And he goes off to work. He goes to work for an oil company, and he's not going to work do that anymore. He's going to stay at home. And uh, he'd take off. And I'd be standing in that house, and I'd be vacuuming, and I'd be saying, when he gets home, I'm going to say this, and then he'll say that. And I'd be writing the whole script. And a little girl would come up to me, and she'd tug on my skirt, and she'd say, Mommy, who are you talking to? And I'd push her out of the way, and I'd say, Leave me alone. I'm and I wasn't drinking. And I was becoming a bad parent. Because my obsession was the drunk. And she was interfering with that obsession. And nobody interferes or gets between me and the drunk. That's called alcoholism, the family disease. Or I'd be looking out the window and she'd come up to me and say, Mommy, help me with my homework. And I'd push her out of the way and I'd say, Leave me alone. I'm I'm not doing nothing but thinking about him. I am so obsessed with him. 
And what I understand today, that obsession and love can't live in the same person. And when I'm obsessed, I am not in love. I had to come here and I had to learn things like let go and let God. I had to learn to live and let live. I had to give up control and and work on detachment. And all of those things made me love an alcoholic. Because I got everything in my mind squared away. You see, my life does not depend upon what the alcoholic does today. My life depends on my relationship with my God. And when I got here, you told me, if you will work on your relationship with your God, your marriage will be fine. And that's what happened. I have a tremendous relationship with my God. And today my marriage is fine. And I love my husband. And people say, you know, oh, leave my wife alone. Don't get her in Al-Anon because they're afraid. Because they don't know what Al-Anon's about. And my kind of Al-Anon is the kind of Al-Anon that teaches us to love alcoholics. Because we do. Everybody always says, why don't you leave them? Why don't you get rid of the bum? They don't understand. We are the only people that understand and love the alcoholic no matter what. We know. We see the good person in there. And we don't understand what's wrong and what keeps that person from not being around most of the time. It's like this guy, he wanted to... to, make his lawn nice, his front lawn, and so he goes and gets fertilizer and has him come and dump all this fertilizer in his front yard, and he has an optimistic son and a pessimistic son. And the pessimistic son comes up to him and he said, Dad, that's horrible. That stuff out there stinks. you got to get rid of it. What are you doing? And he said, Son, that's fertilizer. He said, We'll put grass seed out there and we'll spread that fertilizer all over the lawn and we'll water it and we'll have a beautiful lawn. And the pessimistic son said, no, I can't handle it. It stinks. It's terrible. Get rid of it. And the dad walks over and he looks out the window and his optimistic son's out there and he's just digging like crazy in that fertilizer. And he goes out there and he goes, son, what are you doing? And this old kid says, daddy, with all this horse shit, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) And we're the only ones that know that there's a pony. And we're waiting on that pony. Because we love alcoholics. We love alcoholics. We're the only ones that never give up the hope. Thank God we have hope. And we had to go through all the stuff that we had to go through. And uh, when we got to California, uh, we we got to go to those restaurants. We went to the restaurant. I was so excited. And he said, let's go. We got all dressed up. We went to the restaurant. We sit there. They seated us. They asked us if we had like a cocktail before dinner. And it's like, oh, yes. And we didn't leave Simone out at all. We ordered her a Shirley Temple. And we sat there, and I'll never forget it. And they set those drinks down. Keith picked his up, and he said, babe, let's toast to the good life. And we sat there, and we toasted to the good life. This is the way it is supposed to be. And I loved it. And then I started watching him, and he'd drink ten to my one. I knew exactly how many he had. And I'd watch these people in the room, and they had these long stem crystal glasses, and they were swishing it, and they were sniffing it. And I didn't know what they did and what that was for, because, you see, growing up in a trailer house and, and living like I lived, you don't have fine china and crystal and that kind of stuff. But if I have that stuff, I'll be okay. Because, you see, I was judging my insides with your outsides. If I can just feel the way you look, I'll be okay. You see, I had to come to you to find out that happiness is an inside job. And it's my responsibility. I can no longer depend on another human being to make me happy. It's between me and God. Because I will always have expectations of a human being, and a human being can never fill my expectations. And I had to let go of all of those kind of things. And we sat there in that restaurant, and they came and took our order. 
And they set those wine glasses down in front of us, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm a lady. And now the guy poured Keith just a little bit, and he asked him, is it okay? I said, what do you mean, is it okay? He drank stuff in Oklahoma, had things floating in it. Poor mine. <laughs> and they poured mine. And I sat there in my smug and arrogance, and I swished it, and I sniffed it, and I was great. Until I look across the table at Keith, and he's drinking out of the craft. <laughs> and I yell at him, what are you doing? He said, I'm drinking, that's what I'm doing. And Simone says, not here. And she slides under the table. And I see the waiter, and I holler at him, come here, come here, come here right now. And he comes over, and I don't ever want to forget this part. I said, bring us our food. And he looked right at me, and he said, no, I'm sorry. You're not eating here. And I said, and why not? And he pointed right at me, and he said, because you. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, she doesn't understand. He doesn't understand. If he didn't drink like that, I wouldn't have to be this way. You see, I could not be responsible for my own actions. I blamed what I did on another sick person. If he would just shape up, I'd be fine. But you have to do what I want you to do before I can be somebody. Always putting somebody else before me. And uh, he's escorting us out of that restaurant. And I'm thinking we can never come back. Because Keith's talking to everybody in sign language on the way out. <laughs> and we get home, and I get right in Keith's face, and I go, don't you ever do that to us again. And he says, Sue, get out of my face. And I take one step closer, and I said, if you ever treat us like that again. He said, Sue, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to hit you. And I'm just screaming. And I'm shaking that finger right in his face, and he hits me in the knockdown dragout fight. And he had me over on the bed, and he had his hands around my throat. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if he doesn't let me, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right now. And I look up at him, and he's looking down at me with all the intensity he has, and it dawned on me. He's not thinking about nobody but me. I am number one in this man's life. <laughs> and I started those situations a lot after that because it's the only time I felt like number one. And Keith being from Texas, he fought with guns, and I did not like that at all. And I picked up a butcher knife, and I started fighting back with that butcher knife. And we'd be toe-to-toe. And he'd put his gun right on the end of my nose, and he'd say, if you don't shut up, I'm going to shoot you. And I'd put my knife right in his stomach, and I'd say, you go first. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean I go first? If I go first, I'll shoot you. You die. And I said, I know, but when the bullet hits me, it knocked me backwards, and momentum will make the knife go forwards, and you'll die too, and we'll both die at the same time, so go for it. And he'd look at me and say, you're crazy now. And I was. And he came home one night, and I was going to talk to him about all the stuff he was doing, and he made an almost fatal mistake. He passed out on his stomach. And I took that butcher knife, and I stabbed him all over his back, saying, God, please let me do it. I didn't know that this that I was talking about was the disease of alcoholism. I just wanted relief. And I looked at him and I thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What's wrong with me? What has happened to me? This is the man that I am supposed to love. And I'm trying to kill him. God, what's happened to me? And I laid down and I cried myself to sleep. Keith woke up the next morning, and he said, oh, my God, something's wrong back. <laughs> and I said, well, let me see. And he turned around, and I said, you've been drinking all that rock gut whiskey. You've broken out with acne in the back. <laughs> I said, but it'll be okay, honey. Let me go get the rubbing alcohol. I'll fix it. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it. That is the revenge of the non-drinker. And that is the sadness of the non-drinker. Punishing someone for being sick. And it was the lack of knowledge was my dilemma. You see, when I got to Al-Anon, I was raised by long-timers that only had the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in Al-Anon. 
And a lot of our stuff is in that book, a lot of the Al-Anon stuff, the chapter to the wives and the chapter to the family afterwards. It's in our literature today, printed. It has a conference of proof stamp on the back. And those Al-Anons taught me to read that big book from cover to cover on my own because it's not Al-Anon conference approved literature. But if you're sitting here and you're married to an alcoholic and you haven't read that book, I strongly suggest you do because our program says to find out everything we can about the disease of alcoholism. And I don't know a better place to find that out than the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I read that book, I love the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion, because it talks about the phenomena of craving. I did not know why my husband couldn't drink like me. I did not know that we could go out and have one cocktail, and why couldn't he quit? That's all you're supposed to do is have one cocktail before dinner and then quit. And he couldn't, he was off and running once he did that. And he'd have to drink before we went. I never understood any of that. Because I do not have the phenomena of craving. I have the disease of alcoholism, but I do not have the phenomena of craving. And I needed to know that because I didn't understand why the first drink got him drunk. And I think that it's so important for the non-alcoholics to understand that part of the disease of alcoholism in the alcoholic. And there's another page in there that I love very much because I wanted to know if he was lying to me all the time. And there's a line in there that Bill Wilson wrote that says, there are even times we will tell the truth. That highly indicates they're lying most of the time. And we had to do everything we had to do. And Keith and I had those fights. I put him in jail. I'd go bail him out with hot checks. I went to jail for writing hot checks. Nobody ever taught me how to do those things. Nobody. I just intuitively knew. And uh, I had to chase him down. I had to go find him. I had to hide cars from him. I did all the things that you hear people talk about doing to try to make my husband stop drinking. And I heard it shared today. All of my best ideas got me here. All of them. And the thing that I am so grateful about today is that I don't have any more good ideas. You know why? I have a sponsor. And when I think I've got a good idea, I make a phone call. Hey, Sponce, what do you think about this? Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> After 32 years in this program, oh, my God, this sounds so good. No, I don't think so. And you know what? My sponsor never tells me what to do. She says, this is what I tried, and this is what worked. I don't debate it with her. Why would I ask her to be my sponsor if I'm going to call and debate? I don't need Al-Anon to do that. That's the way it was before I got to the program. When I got here, I totally surrendered. I didn't come here for relief. I came here for recovery. And that's why I got a sponsor. The last drunk in our house, I don't ever want to forget it. Because that's when I surrendered. I'd taken Keith to Alcoholics Anonymous before, four years before we got to the program. An attorney told me if I love him, take him to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I did. I went home and I told him he was laying on the couch, got my butcher knife, said, get up, we're going to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and I took him there every Monday night for four months, and he didn't drink. When I got down on you said you can't keep a drunk sober, but I did for four months, sitting out there in that parking lot with my butcher knife. <laughs> and when I thought he had it down pat, I let him go by himself, and he got struck drunk immediately, and the next four years was total living hell in our house. Because it never gets better, it always gets worse. And that last drunk, 
I looked at Keith, and he had Simone over in the corner doing the things to her that I'd always done to her. Because when Keith and I'd have those fights, and he'd be done, and he would walk, I had that rage inside of me, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I'd turn around, and I'd take the rest of that out on Simone. And I remember one time coming to, and I wasn't drunk. I was in rage. And I came to, and I'm banging her head against the wall, and she's saying, Mommy, I know why you're doing this. You're showing Daddy you can act just like him. And I went, oh, my God. God, please help me. Alcoholism is a family disease, and it runs downhill. You don't have to be an alcoholic to be a bad parent. We take it out on our children, and the non-alcoholic is usually worse than the alcoholic. Because the children understand daddy's drunk, but what's wrong with mother? I'm that last drunk looking at Keith having Simone over in the corner and him doing those things to her. A feeling came over me and I didn't rage and I didn't scream and I didn't grab my knife. I looked at Keith and very calmly I said to him, Keith, I don't love you anymore, but I don't hate you either because I felt nothing. Because alcoholism takes away everything, every feeling, everything we have to operate with. No energy, no nothing. I mean, people talk about getting depressed. I didn't have enough feelings to get depressed. I was numb. And I said, you know, if you've got to be a skid row bum, because that's what I thought happened to drunks, and that's what you've got to do. But Simone, I can't go any further with you. And we got some things together, and we walked out of that house for the very last time. I am so grateful. I am so grateful. Because what I understand today is every non-alcoholic has to hit a bottom just like every alcoholic in order to be willing to come to this program and get a sponsor and work the 12 steps and then give it away. That's what an Al-Anon is. An Al-Anon's not just somebody married to an alcoholic. That's a non-drinker. An Al-Anon is someone who surrenders to the disease of alcoholism and walks into a group of people and says, help me. Total strangers. Simone and I were gone for four days. And she needed some things for school, and she begged me to go back home. And I finally said, okay. And we walked back in that house, and it was at night, and it was dark, and we were afraid of what we'd find in there because Keith was always going to commit suicide or he was always going to kill our pets and stuff. I hated his suicidal things. He had a sawed-off shotgun that he used to sit by the recliner, and he'd come in off a run, and he'd sit in that recliner and drink uh, some kind of wine to come down, and he'd get that shotgun out and you jacked it back and he'd jack it back and he'd sit on the floor and put his toe in it and he'd clip, put it in his mouth and click the trigger. He never put shells in it. But I never knew that. It's like Willie this time. And I died every time he'd do that. And I got so tired of that that once when he was out I put a shell in that gun. <laughs> and he came in and he sat in his recliner and he gets his red mountain wine out. He gets out that shotgun, he jacks it back, and he goes, what's that? And he pulls it over, and he clicks it, and he killed our air conditioner. (laughs) So when we walked in that house that night, we didn't know what we was going to find. And we walked around, and uh, we found him face down on the bedroom floor. We thought he was dead, so we kicked him. (laughs) And he rolled over, and he looked at me, and he said, Sue, please help. Now, that wasn't the first time he had ever said that. But I believe because I'd hit a bottom and I'd ask a power greater than myself to help me, that that's the point that God moved into my life and gave me the one word, the most important word I've ever said to that man in my life that's helped him more than any word I could ever say to him. And God gave me the power to say, No, no, I can't help you. If you want help, you help yourself. Thank God. You see, once I got out of the way and took off my God suit, and I let booze and God do for that man what I couldn't do, he reached out to a God of his own understanding and to Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, it's read in every AA meeting right after the 12 steps. It's the ABCs. 
No human power can relieve our alcoholism. I think they're talking about the non-alcoholic. And that God could and would if he was sought. Once I got out of the way, he reached out to AA. And he got up and he made that phone call, thank God. And we fought with a gun and a knife one more time, because that's who we are. (laughs) And the doorbell rang, and I went to the door, and here's this little gray-headed, shriveled-up man standing there. And I'm thinking, Jesus, why don't they send the big ones on these trips? (laughs) And the second most important man in our lives walked into our house. And he's taken Keith to check him into a detox. And he asked me if I'd go with him. And I said, and we took Keith in. And he took me home. And he sat in the driveway. And he said, you need help. I said, no, I don't. You don't understand. If he'll quit drinking, I'll be just fine. He said, no, you won't. You're the most angry, trash-mouthed woman I've ever been around in my life. <laughs> and you need help. He said, let's go in the house and talk to Simone. He went in there and he told Simone, if you love your daddy and you want to help him, the only thing that can help you is for you to go to a program called Alateen. And your mom needs to go to a program called Ellen. And I heard it. Thank God I heard it. And Simone and I went over at this church. He told us where it was at and we went over at this church and walked in my very first meeting. And the cover on the Al-Anon Big Book at that time said living with an alcoholic. And I was like a neon sign blinking off and on in that. And I had a feeling come over me that's like, oh my gosh, they understand. The anger left. The shame left. And a feeling of relief came over me that I'd never experienced. I had to hide nothing in that room. And they started talking, and they shared all of my answers. It was the greatest feeling I ever had, and I loved it. And Simone and I kept going. Keith came home from the detox. He said, i got to go to an AA meeting every day for the rest of my life. What are you going to (laughs) do? I said, well, I'm going to Al-Anon. Simone's going to Alateen. The dog's going to Al-A-Dog and Cat's going to (laughs) Al-A-Dog. And we started out on a path. And I had to, uh, everybody was talking about the sponsor stuff, and I wanted one. Because the people that were talking about sponsors were feeling better, it seemed like to me. And they had answers that I didn't have. And I wanted answers, that's all I wanted. I wanted answers, and I wanted to feel better, and I wanted it all, and I wanted it right now. Impatience and greed, my two best character defects, got me into recovery right now. They became my assets. So I asked this lady that had the most time in that meeting. She was old and had tons of time. She was 18 years in Alma. And I went up to her and I said, will you be my sponsor? She said, call me at 6 o'clock in the morning and we'll talk about it. I said, 6 o'clock in the morning, tomorrow's Saturday. So I always slept in on the weekends. That's the only time I could sleep. And she looked at me and she said, you got to get up to work a program. You know what? I was up at 5 o'clock waiting for 6 because I didn't want to miss it. And she said, yes. If you will do these simple things, you will get up in the morning, you will read your one day at a time book. You will read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous every morning on awakening. Then you will read the third step prayer. Then you will read the seventh step prayer on your knees. And then you will go and look in the mirror and say, good morning, Sue, I love you. And that was the hard part. I don't know when it happened, but I remember one morning looking in there, and there was a person in there. It didn't matter what she looked like. She just knew that I cared. And I stood there and said, oh, my God, it works. It works. And I was going to those meetings. She told me I had to collect eight hugs at every meeting. I hated people touching me. 
She said, you collect eight hugs at every meeting. I said, why? She said, because when you put your arms around someone and you hug them, they put their arms around you and they hug you. And God's follows and you're both embraced in the fellowship of this program and you're safe. And so I started doing that. Didn't like it, but I did it. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. You just got to do it. I think we babysit way too much in this program now. Well, I don't want to do that. Who cares? I told her one time, I said, you always say, it says, we care around here. And I tell you something, you know, like, I say, what do you, I ask you, what should I do? And she'll say, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I always tell you. And you say, do exactly the opposite. And I'll say, well, I don't want to do that. And she'll go, well, I don't care. And I said, and everybody around here says we care, but you don't. <laughs> she said, I want to tell you something, smart mouth. She said, we don't care about hurting your feelings. We're here to save your life. And you do exactly what I told you to do. And I remember the day that I went up to her and I said, I've been getting these hugs meetings now and I feel good in here, but I don't feel this way at home. She said, I want to tell you something. We don't care if you're wonderful for an hour, or hour and a half in these meetings. You got sick at home. That's where you take this recovery. Now, you're going to go home tonight, and you're going to hug Keith. I said, I don't want it. She said, I don't care. (laughs) So I said, okay. And I went home. Pretty soon, Keith came home. He started walking down the hall toward me, and I thought, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And I said, God, if it's going to work, it better work. And Keith got up beside me, and I put my arm around him, and I hugged him, and he looked at me, and he goes, what's that for? I said, just for the hell of it, they told me to do it. Don't ask me why. And he said, I just love it when you're working a program. I remember after, I don't know, it must have been a year or so, my sponsor had me go to all the service meetings and stuff, and I was going every Saturday to this place where they had all the world service meetings or they had intergroup meetings or they had convention planning meetings. And I had to go every Saturday because Saturdays were horrible in our house. And so I went to all of these service meetings. And uh, so one Thursday night we was laying in bed and Keith goes, what are you doing this weekend? What are you going to do Saturday?" I go, what are you talking about? This is Thursday. We do this thing one day at a time. What do you mean? He said, because you're always doing something on Saturdays, and I just wondered what this Saturday had. And I thought, oh, my gosh. He's interested in me. It's working. And he was interested in me because I wasn't chasing him around. I was like a bird dog with him. And Simone got involved in service in... You know, my sponsor took me through all of the steps by having me read that step in the AA and the Al-Anon 12 and 12. Every day for a week, and then I would write on that step. And then I would give it to her, and she'd take me through it and see what I'd learned and give me feedback on it. And I got to the fourth step, and I tried the blueprint for progress. She goes, no, that ain't it, because I said yes, no, maybe sometimes. She got me in the big book, and she took me through the four columns. The first column's the resentment, the second column's the cause, the third column, how it made me feel, and the fourth column I call the I gotcha column. What part did I play? And I couldn't get that part. She said, there are no victims, there's just volunteers. You had a part to play in everything. You get on your knees, and you ask God to put the words in the pencil that you need to see. And so I did, and when I got up, it was like a video going in front of me. I could see me in Keith's face shaking that finger. I could hear him saying, get out of my face, or I'm going to hit you. And I could take one step closer, and I went, oh, my gosh, it was me. I was finally able to look at that fourth column and take responsibility for me. And that's what this program is all about. Is looking at me and then going to the sixth and seventh step and giving the bad to God in the sixth step and the seventh step, asking him to help me work on my assets. I hated people. I had to turn it over in the seventh step and say, God, please help me become a lover. 
And I did that with every one of my characters. I made that list of the men's. And uh, <laughs> my sponsor, it was so long, my sponsor said, you're not that important. Just go out in the parking lot and say, sorry. <laughs> but I had to make the direct amends to the people that counted. The hardest one was with my daughter. Keith was an adult, and AA was taking care of him. But what about the kid? How do you know when to let God and when to be a parent? Well, today I know it's very simple. I have to be an example of recovery everywhere I'm at. And I had to be an example with my daughter. And I had to tell my daughter, I'm not going to ground you forever anymore. We do this program one day at a time. And if I ask you to do something and you commit to do it and you don't do it, you're grounded tomorrow and tomorrow only. And what happened with that kind of an arrangement between her and I is that she learned to trust me. And I learned to trust myself. I could do it for one day at a time because I threatened all the time. And everything was forever. And when I got it down to as simple as one day at a time, that little girl and I started building a relationship. I had to get up earlier in the mornings and get out of the bed, get ready to go to work and get out of the bathroom and let her have the bathroom to herself because we fought in the bathroom all the time in the mornings. And so I'd get up early and I'd get ready and I'd go in and I'd kiss her goodbye and, and say, have a good day, Simone. And she'd get up, she'd get ready on her own and go to school. And one morning I was in a hurry and I was running late and I ran out of the house. And when I got to work, she called me and she goes, Mom. Are you mad at me? And I said, no, babe, I'm not mad at you. Why? And she said, because every morning when I get up and I go to brush my teeth and I look in the mirror, I see your lipstick print on my face and I know you care. And I thought it's working. And it's worked from that day right up to this day. In our family, the good news is, is that God has never let all three of us be out of God consciousness at the same time. There's always one person in our family that says, I don't want to hear it, call your sponsor. <laughs> Three magic words, call your sponsor. Still today, still today. That little girl worked a program, made a transition into Al-Anon, and today she's 45 years and she's still active in Al-Anon. She got to follow a dream. She always wanted to be a model, and she got to follow a dream. And Alateen and her God gave her the courage and her sponsor to go to Milan, Italy. She had modeled local, and uh, they told her that she had the look she needed to go to Europe. And so she wanted to go to Milan, Italy, because that's where it was happening. And she was working, going to college, and she got her uh, fashion marketing degree, and she was working, and she asked, uh, she told Keith and I that she wanted to go. She wanted to just see if she could do it. And could she stay at our house and save her money and then go on her own? And she, and she said, my sponsor says I need to pay rent. Keith said, that's not necessary, but it's sponsor direction, so we'll honor that. So she gave him a check for rent, and a few days later he came up to me and he said, you know that check Simone gave me for... It bounced. <laughs> I said, we taught her well, didn't we? <laughs> and Keith gave her the check back, and he said, babe, you don't have to pay rent anymore. Save your money. And the day came that we took her to LAX. She took all of her stuff and she went cold to Milan because she couldn't get an agent to, to uh, represent her till she got there. They, they'd say, come here and we will help you. And she had a portfolio and all of her stuff. And, and she went on her own. And we didn't hear from her for six weeks. We were on our knees every night together. One night, Keith and I were on our knees together, and we was on his side of the bed, and I go, how come we always pray on our knees on your side of the bed? <laughs> he said, because I'm the man in the house. <laughs> so we got at the end of the bed, in neutral territory, and we prayed. And uh, 
What I learned from that is there is no spot where God is not. And the most important thing is God does not have grandkids. She is God's kid, not ours. And she had to do, she got sick after she got over there, and she ended up, uh, she couldn't find al She reached out to Alcoholics Anonymous. She ended up in an English-speaking meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and they told her how to find Al-Anon. Al-Anon was only four years old when she got there. And she has literally been a pioneer program over there. She has translated all kinds of literature, AA and Al-Anon, into Italian. Two years ago, she was translating Lois Remembers into Italian. And she called me. And she was at the part in Lois's book where they were in their motorcycle and sidecar, and they pull up to this farm on the East Coast, and this little boy came out and looked at her and said, what do you wops want? Now, our daughter lives in Italy, and she's married to an Italian. She goes, Mom, what's a wop? <laughs> I said, I think you should say, folks. What do you folks want? <laughs> and she has started conferences. She has started women's conferences. She literally started Alateen. And she modeled uh, for seven years or so. Men, Italian man, a very normal Italian man. He is a very nice man. You see, we believe that she got spiritually fit where she could choose a man that was good for her. She did not have to pick someone with a disease of alcoholism or any kind of addiction. And he's a very wealthy man, and we're grateful for that. And uh, they've been married 13 years. We have uh, Nicole, our first granddaughter, nine years old. She is the first person in my life that ever taught me what unconditional love is all about. And I know the grandparents sitting in this room know what I'm talking about. And when they had Nicole, she called, and we got to hear her cry on the telephone. And then I got to go over there and be with her and be a mother like you told me to be and to help my daughter with her first baby. And they named Nicole, Nicole Dama. I said, Dama. She said, yeah, that's Fabio's mother's name, her mother-in-law. And I said, that's nice. (laughs) And she said, well, mother, she said, Sue in Italian means up. And I'm not going to go around saying, where's up? (laughs) And Nicole is the apple of my eye. And uh, hmm. so 18 months ago, they had our second granddaughter. And they told Nicole that she could name her because Nicole wasn't going to be a good big sister. Nicole says she's going to be a major big sister. And Nicole and I identify a lot. She wears a lot of leopard, too. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) she went up to a lady. They were at the Italian uh, Riviera, and she was playing in the sand, and she was playing with these kids with their sand pails and stuff, and and the kids were fussing, and this other kid's, this Italian grandmother comes up to her and tells her in Italian, you know, you're not playing fair with my grandkids, you know, and and uh, Nicole says, well, I want to play with their bucket. And this lady kicked sand in Nicole's face. And Nicole just stood up, put her hands on her hips, and says, my grandma is in America. Now, I, she just intuitively knew that if I was there, I would have kicked her ass. <laughs> so Nicole and I have a soul connection. And I love her to death. I mean, when she was little and they came over and she wanted to sleep with Keith and I and she was laying there and she goes, Granny, 
latte. Granny latte. Because being a baby, she couldn't speak English. And so I got up and I went and fixed her bottle and came back and gave her a bottle. And Keith goes, how did you know that? I said, haven't you ever been to Starbucks? <laughs> Everybody knows latte's milk. You know? So you improvise, you know? And so we have learned to communicate. Now she's speaking more English, and she thinks that I give the best back scratches. And, and when we're there, I get to sleep beside her, and she rolls over, and I scratch her. She says, I love you, Granny. And she got to name the new baby. And so she got out. Simone always says to the girls that she sponsors, uh, we either all princesses or there are none. And Nicole will look at Simone and say, I'm the queen. <laughs> and so Nicole got her princess book out and started picking, looking at names for the new little girl. And she picked out the name Jasmine, Princess Jasmine. And they named her, she said she wanted to name her Jasmine Sue, after Granny. She did for my daughter what my daughter couldn't do for herself. (laughs) And and I think God put Nicole in Simone's life to help her become the person that I always wanted Simone to be. Yeah, because she tests her a lot. And Simone called the other day, and she goes, Mom, I need to talk to you about being a a mother. I want you to share with me how you started being a loving mother to me. What made you not react to me anymore? What made you start being a loving mother? Because Nicole and I are fussing, and I don't want to be that way anymore. And I want to be like you've been to me since you got down. You don't think the ninth step hasn't worked in our family. And I said, uh, I got tired of being ugly. And I got tired of you hating me. And I wanted to be the best mom that anybody could ever be. And I had to do it one day at a time, Simone. And I had to be consistent because that's what this program's all about. And I said, you're living over there, and you don't have an alcoholic in your life, but I know you read your books every day. Maybe if you will put Nicole's name in your pages in your book, everywhere it says alcoholic, you can. And she goes, oh, my gosh, Mom, thank you so much. I don't know why I didn't think that. And she said a couple of weeks ago, it's our family turned ourselves into you. We believed everything you told us to do. We did everything you've told us to do. We never became normal from May the 11th, 1976, till right now. I did not come here for relief. I came here for recovery. I cannot stay in recovery unless I give this thing away. And I love to sponsor others, women. Keith and I just recently got a house in uh, Las Vegas, and we go there from time to time. We haven't moved there, but we go there. And I love Al-Anon over there because the women there are so desperate. And I just helped them start a new step study meeting for Al-Anon over there. And they're using the AA 12 and 12 and the Al-Anon 12 and 12 in that step study because they can. It is conference approved. And it's grown. They started out with six girls, and they got ten. And it's, they've only done it for three weeks. I love this program. I love this way of life. It is a way of life. I don't fit my Al-Anon program into my life. I fit my life into Al-Anon. Because without Al-Anon, I don't have a life. I don't think you have one either. It gives us every answer we have ever needed. Not only does it give us every answer it ever needed, it has helped me to fall in love with an alcoholic that I hated. You know why? I love it when I see my husband hug another alcoholic. I don't know any other alcoholic, any alcoholic that wants to give anything away. 
But when I see my husband giving this program away, I... AA comes first in his life, thank God. Al-Anon comes first in my life, thank God. And because of that, we have a life of hope together one day at a time. And we've been together 48 years. That's not a mistake. That's because for 32 years we have applied the principles in this program. And when it has gotten tough, we don't dump on each other. We call our sponsor. It's still the magic of this program. Sponsorship and steps will take you down a path toward your higher power and we'll all go to heaven together. Thank you very much.